The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net and you can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905 905- Nine seven two seven four two zero. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Good morning, Scott. Morning, Mitch. Good morning, Scott. You know, it's uh, been quite a week. Uh, do- uh, gas hitting the price of two twenty two point nine a liter in Vancouver. Don, you and I were talking about this on the show earlier on the uh, in the week. It has become very unaffordable for people. Yeah, inflation is. You know, as as I mentioned on 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 air with you last week, it's. Uh, it's in your face when it finally shows up on a gas board. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's the big billboard. It's a billboard saying, okay, inflation has hit. And look at the price per liter it is now. Um, like you said, over uh, $2.22 in Vancouver. And, and you know, it's just a matter of time. It goes from west to east. So it won't I paid be much that longer. yesterday. That's exactly what I paid yesterday. Wow. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. Uh, wow. Oh, now, you, pay, you paid for it. Was it uh, that's not regular. You had high test or? Yeah, but it was two oh two was the wow. Yeah. Base. Over over two dollars. And prior to this pandemic, they couldn't get rid of gas. You know, they they bought a barrel of oil was actually less. It was free. They're yeah. giving it away because yeah. they had this glut and they had no nowhere to to store it. And yeah. people weren't driving and the whole no world demand. shut down. No demand. Mm-hmm. Now we got the opposite. Everybody's coming out of it. And you saw, you know, during during COVID, it was like less than a dollar, and now it's over two dollars. So yes, that that is an impact on everybody because inflation curbs all the discretionary spending. Mm-hmm. You know, all the fun stuff that you have a choice to spend money on. Now you have to think, oh, I have to spend money on gas to get to work, and so that leaves less money for other things. And of course, uh, another huge issue is housing, and you know that was the issue I think a couple of weeks ago. But I guess gasoline prices have superseded that this week. And Mitch, you're going to talk about uh, at least some of the ways you can afford a home if you're a first-time buyer. <laughs> yeah, uh, the government's definitely trying. It's in their face just as much as the gas prices is probably in our face. But uh, the cost of living in Canada has been increasing pretty rapidly, and inflation is certainly a, a term used a lot this year. I know many people my age that feel like it's going to be impossible to buy a first home. They feel like they, they may have to rent forever unless some, a house gets passed down or an inheritance or the, the bank of mom and dad chips in, which is a very common thing happening. Let me ask well. you, let me ask you, Mitch, because you know, you're one or two years younger than Don and I, um, <laughs> <laughs> what is, what is the buzz when you go out on a Friday or Saturday night, and you're sitting around chatting with your friends. What do they say? Or do they talk about this? They, they're certainly talking about the housing prices and lots of them are saying like, I, I wish I got in three, four years ago, or I wish uh-huh. I started saving much sooner, uh, putting money away when they're 18 instead of uh, going out to some a few bars here and there or whatnot, uh-huh. right? Uh, that extra 500 bucks a month towards a house would have gone a long way if you started at 18 and now they're 28 to 29, 30 years old. And they're, they're looking at these housing prices and the average in Hamilton is uh, over a million dollars now. This year in May, yeah. the average in Hamilton's over a million bucks. And they're looking at this saying, how, how can I afford that? If you're out to put, if you're trying to put 20% down, if your house is a million bucks, it's $200,000. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it, 
Looks like it may start to trend the other way if you actually look at the details and not just the pricing. So from May 2021 to May 2022, the houses in Waterdown, Hamilton, Burlington, that kind of area, the prices have gone up about 20 to 30%. But if you look at the number of sales, they've actually gone down about 30%. Roughly 1,300 houses were sold in uh, March last year in 2021. And about 850 were sold in this, this is in Hamilton in uh, March 2022. So they are putting in some measures to slow down the sales and slow down the price increases. The government's raising interest rates, as we've mentioned so many times before. And uh, hopefully they can become a little bit more affordable. You know, we, you're talking about you're talking about cooling the market and obviously you've just given the stats to prove that, but we, and you know, prices may have leveled. <laughs> I don't think they're, they're still, they're still going up. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously the market is cooling, but is that helping anybody buy a house? No, that's not. Well, if it goes down, that will help people be able to afford it because they are trying to save and they're being patient, but the, the government are, they're putting in some measures. Uh, they did announce in their budget this year that they're continuing some measures, uh, also increasing some of the measures that been in place before, as well as uh, in, uh, introducing a, a new one as well. But the, the first one is that they announced that they're going to continue the first time home buyer incentive until 2025. And this is an incentive that is shared equity mortgage with the government of Canada. And they're going to lend you five to 10% towards a first time home buyer's purchase of a home. Uh, it depends on the type of home you buy. And Basically, when you sell your house, the government either takes portion in the loss of that house or also the proceeds. So that's a little bit of how you can get towards the down payment of a house right there. The government will do that at least until 2025. Uh, number two is the first time bar- the first time home buyers tax credit, uh, also known as the buyer's amount. It's always been five thousand dollars, a non-refundable income tax credit but they have proposed this year to increase that to $10,000 as of January 1st, 2022. And this can give you up to $1,500 in tax relief for, for those eligible. But uh, the one that's been most common has been the home buyer's plan with the RSPs. We've talked about this many times and it allows you to use up to $35,000 from your RSP. It, it does have to be paid back over about 16 years. You get one grace year in there and just like all the other measures here, this is a one-time deal that you only get to use this for your first home. But the fourth one here is new and it's the tax-free first home savings account. It's a That's kind of a mouthful. Oh, There's quite yeah. a mouthful there. Yeah. Yeah. Still have lots of clients and uh, friends that still call it a TSFA, a tax-free tax <laughs> savings. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't correct them, but it's a TFSA. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But this one's going to take a little bit while because now this one's called an FHSA. And this new <laughs> this new account's going to start being used in 2023. And it's going to allow anyone who is 18 years old or older who's not purchased the first home to open an account. The, the maximum amount that you can put in is $8,000 a year with the maximum lifetime amount of $40,000 in contributions. This account, it's going to work like an RSP. So you're going to get to deduct this from your taxable income, but it's great because you're not going to use any of your RSP room. So all of your RSP room that from work is still going to be accumulating. And this new account, you're also going to be d- deduct those contributions from your income. And it's also going to work as a TFSA because it's going to grow tax-free. And this, this, it's a great tool. The more I read about it, the more I'm 
this would be the place that I would likely be going before you go to the RSP home buyer because you can't use both. You can only use one or the other. And uh, that's a good question. Uh, Cause I was wondering that if you could play one against the other, but not the case here. No, you're not going to be able to use both, but if you do have an RSP, you can transfer it into the FHSA uh, without causing any tax implications. So, right. but you won't get that RSP room back unfortunately. So if you do transfer it to the uh, new account, the FHSA, you're not going to get that RSP room that you already used up right, versus right. starting with the FHSA. It doesn't sound to me there's any downside to this new program. It, that's really how it sounds. It's a, it's a great program. The account has to be used within 15 years of it being opened. So if you, if you open it when you're 18, you at least have to use it before you're 33. Which, which is a good time frame to let it keep growing and doing its thing. But to compare the pros and cons of this to the RSP home buyers, uh, currently you can only withdraw 35,000 from your RSP for the first time home buyers program. So even if you contributed, let's say 40,000 to the RSP and then it grows to 50, 60 plus, you can still only take out 35,000 from the RSP towards the down payment of the home from that program. But the FHSA, if you contribute, let's say the maximum 40,000 and it grows to 50, maybe even 100,000, by the time you use it, you can use the whole 100,000, no tax on it, and you're not even gonna have to pay it back. So you're gonna be able to have a lot more to put towards a down payment versus using that RSP home buyers program. Like, can I ask another question, Mitch? Why would you even use the RSP if you're, you know, just starting out? Why would you even have the RSP, uh, take the RSP option? Why wouldn't you just do this? Uh, going forward, it makes more sense to do the FHSA before yeah. you do that. Yeah. Uh, one I, thought I, one, sorry, one thought I did have, though, is that the paying it back is actually probably a good thing because you're forced and it's ingrained in your you're head putting you it back have to in. pay this back over 15 16 years yeah. and it makes you do that versus this one it's like okay i don't have to pay it back yeah, yeah. but you also so when you recontribute to that rsp the home buyers program the amount that you put back you don't get that tax deduction again you're just recontributing to that deduction that you took the first time versus if you take it from this fhsa and then you just have it ingrained in your head that you're going to pay it back anyways, you're getting that new contribution that you're putting into the RSP and thus getting that new tax reduction. So as long as you're going to stick to your plan and have a good financial planner here that says, okay, but you still have to keep doing this RSP, it's, it's a great program. And I would suggest this is probably going to be the place to go first, as well as having a TFSA. So an FHSA <laughs> and a TFSA, uh, having both of these, would probably be the first two places I would suggest once you're 18, because you, you do get that TFSA room once you become 18. You also get this FHSA room once you turn 18. So these would be the first two places I would, I would suggest for sure. It sounds like a high school. It sounds like a high school. So it, it, it does. I'm over at TFSA. Where are you? Yeah, I'm at <laughs> FHSA. <laughs> but it really, really in a nutshell though, with the new program, you get a tax deduction when you put it in, you take the funds, out tax-free it doesn't affect your rsp room and if you do happen to put money back in like a and repay it like you suggest and what you should do you get another tax deduction so it almost feels like you're double dipping plus you get a, all the tax-free growth um honestly it sounds like they've done a lot of homework on this program it sounds like a the perfect solution i guess the only downside is it's just starting next year 
And so it's going to take some time for them, people to accumulate yeah. at $8,000 a year. Yeah, yeah, because you can't put that 40000 in in one year, even if you're 30 years old, you can't do that. They only allow you to do 8000 a year. So it does it does take that time, five years, to get up to that 40000 in contributions. Uh, but also a great thing about this is that if you have a spouse or a partner that also has, uh, you're going to start accumulating together, you can actually both use them just like the RSP homebuyers. So instead of the RSP homebuyers, you could each use 35000 but if this one, if you put each put 40,000 in and it grows to 100,000 each hypothetically, then you have $200,000 that you get tax-free, you don't have to pay back and you can combine together to put towards a uh, down payment of a home. So it, it, this is for sure gonna be something I think we're gonna see a lot more of going forward and the RSP home buyer might not be the place that we really go with. All right, we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick pause here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. All right, Don, our next segment, how do you respond to a crisis? What are you talking about here? Well, this, uh, you might have noticed, Scott, um, particularly you do a lot of shows, you might even talk about these crises. And yes, there's uh, lots going on in the world since January 1st, of course, a Russian invasion. Yep. Um, inflation was talked about, but finally kind of reared its ugly head really coming into this year. And it was already starting late, you know, late last year. But, you know, you know with the U.S. over 7% inflation, Canada almost around 6% inflation. And now the responding interest rates that are have gone up because of it and you're looking at five-year mortgages to kind of piggyback on what mitch was talking about five-year mortgages are now over four percent now that sounds okay but they were it wasn't long ago and we're talking only six months ago they're under two percent so just to put in perspective you know for that home buyer anybody has a renewing mortgage that that may have an impact on on their lifestyle if they haven't locked up you know don this is amazing i don't know how long you and i have been doing the show together but I remember when these things bottomed out and for the first five years, it was, well, when they come back, well, when they come back. And then that was the norm for what seemed like a century. Mm -hmm. And now and now we're talking today as if we were however many years ago. It's bizarre. It's it is. It's almost like chicken little. The sky is falling. The sky is falling and nothing happens. Yeah. You know, nobody does anything about it. And finally. It is actually, and this is this is what we call the crisis part, because when inflation hits, it impacts people's portfolio. Um, not only the stock market has dropped because of it, because now they're trying to figure out is this uh, could this lead to a recession, which I'm going to talk about in, very shortly. But uh, everybody's trying to guess in the stock market's trying to guess the future earnings of companies, because with higher inflation, there's more costs, and the companies will make less money. So you're looking at certain segments of the world's stock markets are, are being hit fairly hard, particularly the U.S. So, the, you know, the standards import 500 is down about 16%. The NASDAQ, 
which is the year-to-date, mind you, the NASDAQ is down 25% year-to-date. So those would be the technology stocks. Um, and then you look at saying, well, the, those are also, by the way, the hottest areas in the last few years of where people have got a lot of returns. So they were also the highest-priced stocks coming into the year. So they also likely were going to take the fall a little bit more than the others. Now, Canada is weathering the storm pretty good. It's down about 6% year-to-date. And mainly because we have a lot of resource stocks. And just as we talked about earlier, those gas, uh, those gas pumps are going up. Well, the oil companies are making a lot more money. And you're seeing earnings go up tremendously on, on the oil stocks and the gas stocks right now. Now, bank stocks also do a little bit better when, when there's higher interest rates. So they're starting to start going up also. Now, all this starts to lead, okay, no, there's that statement shock, though. When people start to look at their statement, they think, oh, my God, I've lost whatever money. And this is always painful. I've got, you know, 37 years later, it doesn't get easier, okay? Nobody ever wants to see money drop. It's, it's, and now it's even worse because when I first started, you used to get a semi-annual statement. So you only had to worry about this every six months, <laughs> okay? Well, they went to quarterly statements and I thought, okay, I don't really want to have clients look at this every quarter. It's too short. They, you don't want anybody to make a knee-jerk reaction based on the dollar value of their portfolio. Well, now... You can find, watch this stuff online. You can watch it every day. And if you want to make yourself feel good or bad based on the performance of the previous day, it's like, well, that's a way to do it. It can literally impact people. And that's the risk. People will make decisions based on the portfolio. And I've always said, Scott, we've said this many years, everybody's portfolio rises by percentages. Yeah. So, okay. So, oh, yeah, my, my $250,000 went up 10%. So yeah, it went up 25,000, but they don't talk about the 25,000 goes up. They only talk about, yeah, it did 10%. That's pretty good. But boy, if it goes down 10%, <laughs> yeah. they don't talk about the 10%. They talk about the 25,000. So it falls by dollars and it goes up uh, by percentages. And that is human nature. This has not changed in all the years I've done this. So, so how to respond to a crisis? The answer is you don't. Okay. That is a short answer. So you don't have to listen to the rest of the show anymore. That is really the answer. I'm but, going for breakfast. <laughs> there you go. So and you look back, the 100, we just were talking to clients not long ago, talking about the 100-year global health pandemic and how the, the U.S. market went down 33% in 34 days. And if you listen to the news at the time, there was no end in sight. It wasn't going to get any prettier. As it turned out, it had fully, that was actually the bottom and it, it started to go up at that time. There was the U.S. the U.S. election, and that was going to have lots of, you know, ramifications based on you know passing the torch to Biden or if if Trump actually won again. Both cases there was negative talk about it. It turns out it was a non-event. The market actually didn't even do really a whole lot because of it. Uh, and now recently, the Russian invasion that obviously spooked the markets originally, um, and then if, and the big one right now is actually inflation interest rates, and potential recession. And so the markets do react to this, and they're trying to guess, as I mentioned, what to do. So interest rates have their, you know, the G10 got together, and the chief economists in mid-April, so just a month ago, from Goldman Sachs, said there's a 15%, a 1-5, not 50, 15% chance in the next 12 months of a recession. Okay. Not terrible. And this is just recent. 
and there's a 35% in the next 24 months. Well, to be honest, you look through the chances of recession, there's been six recessions since 1980. Mm-hmm. Okay. And by the way, a recession by definition is two negative quarters in the economy. So the gross domestic product, G- GNP, you know, GDP rather, drops in value for two consecutive quarters. Well, there's been, like I said, there's been seven, uh, six, six of these since 1981 in every seven years. And the longest was in December 2007 to June 2009. So that was the great financial crisis where credit, everything, um, you know, the mortgage-backed securities, basically they pulled the rug from under everybody's financially in the U.S. and that had impacts throughout the world. The GDP declined by 5.1%, okay? So it wasn't terrible and the market recovered. It took a while for the market. The U.S. that took about six years to recover. Canada, the Canadian market was about three years. It went down, came back up. And again, this also talks to you should diversify. You should not be chasing returns. And this is where we saw a lot of people talk about going after, say, growth stocks during the pandemic. And some of those are down 80, 90 percent because they did extremely well, like Peloton. Uh, Everybody was starting to work out in their condo or what have you because they couldn't go to the gym. Well, they were over $100 a share at one time. And now they're about $15 a share. So it's absolutely incredible how much volatility there is because, you know, I personally, I, I didn't expect people to continue to want to work out at home. Once this thing was over, yeah. I had a feeling people would love to get back outside and do things themselves. But the stock market or people, more, more buyers and sellers that came down to, more demand for that stock than people willing to sell it, so the price went up. Now, the shortest recession happened to be the one we just went through. It was the COVID recession. It started in February 2020, and then it ended April 2020. GDP went down 19% because nobody could spend any money. Everything yeah. was closed. Now, the average recession is 10 months, and the average decline in the GDP is 5%. Now, if you simply just take out the COVID recession, because that is a, an outlier, that is 19%. You take that one out, the GDP decrease was only 2% on the average recession. And so that hopefully will give you some peace of mind saying, okay, the whole world doesn't end during recessions. These are normal. This is the yin and yang of the economy. There's always excesses and things go back. It's funny when it's funny when you go through what is, I don't know, a typical recession and there's no pandemic. People have a different attitude than when they're in a pandemic and they're going through a recession. For ex- in other words, people are very concerned about the pandemic. They're probably not thinking too much recession right now, even though we're probably in one of the biggest ones. Yes. Or, or uh, were, or were. Certainly the pandemic, there was no end in sight. Nobody knew yeah. how fast a vaccine would come. Mm-hmm. They didn't know exactly the extent of the illness. Mm-hmm. And it takes time to answer some of those questions. So they... As they got more and more knowledge about it, they realized, okay, that we can adapt. And boy, did the world ever adapt with, with things such as we're still doing it to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were Zoom calls and, and not meeting in, in person and realizing a lot of things can actually be done at home. So it was actually incredible how quickly the population of the world adapted to it. And of course, yeah, there's the, you know, the sad part of people, of course, passing away because of yeah. it. But 
the great news story was how fast they, they came up with a solution with the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So absolutely incredible. But again, this is the, what the market goes through. It goes through these gyrations. It's never fun, like I said. And so from 1980 um, to April 2022, so last month, there's been 508 months. Okay. So that's a lot of months. Out of those months, there's been 58 months the market has declined. And there's been, an, an, or the, or the, sorry, the economy has declined. And 88% of the time, it has been rising. The economy is getting better. So I don't know about you, Scott, but I'd take an 88% chance on most things. Um, and particularly, uh, you know, if you had an 88 average at school, um, you'd be an A student. So 88 is a pretty good number. I don't think I, I don't think I ever saw one of those come to think about it. (laughs) Yeah. 88 is a pretty good odds, but it's still what people talk about is the 58 months of decline. Yeah. And by the way, that's also where it's the most newsworthy. So that grabs all the eyeballs that grabs the newspapers, it grabs the media, grabs the CNN. They talk about the the 12%. They're not talking about the 88% and not a whole lot different than, they don't talk about the people that made it to work without an accident. They only talk about the accidents. Yeah, and, good point. And most people, fortunately, make it to work. So if you go back, after inflation in 1980, the average GDP, GDP per person was 30174 So if you take all the gross domestic product of the whole country in the U.S., divide it by the population, it was $30,000 approximately. And that's after inflation. That's, take, that's in today's dollars. Currently, it's 59.5. So almost 60,000. So the average gross domestic product per person has doubled. And what that tells you is we're twice as better off on average. Now, there is a rich, certainly, particularly in the US, have been even got richer. And perhaps the poor didn't get as much of this pie as the rich. But on average, the population was twice as better off. So going to today, where does that leave us? Well, yeah, there's um, inflation, but we've seen inflation before. <clears throat> it's been a while though. Um, I got to say, Scott, and you and I were 19, in the early 1980s. Yeah. I was in, I was in university and, uh, and we, people were talking about the super high interest rates. Canada savings bonds were 19.5%. Inflation mm-hmm. was thir- 13% at that yeah. time. Okay. And yes, the market has had three big drops since 19 or uh, in, in our lifetimes if you're 50 years old which we both are early 70s um, the market dropped 48 percent so almost 50 percent from 19 January 73 to October 74 so but and that was uh, due to the oil prices funny enough oil prices tripled OPEC and uh, you may remember I remember driving yeah. to Florida with my parents at that yep. time gas shortages gas shortages okay yep. so that crippled the economy but things recovered. The next big one was the dot-com boom. 2000, March 2000 to 2002, the market dropped 49%. But it was mainly, again, a ton of money pouring into dot-com stocks that had no earnings. And that segment really dropped. It, it dropped the whole market. But if you weren't invested in that segment, you really didn't get hurt too badly. But again, it, the NASDAQ didn't recover, and it's at all, it hit all-time highs. Um, the big one also was the financial crisis. And that was October um, 2007 to March 2009. The market dropped by 57%. Okay. But if you look at, uh, in general, if you go back to January 73, 
and you bought just before the market started to go down. So the S&P 500, the U.S. stock market, was 120 before the drop. And the dividend per share, on average, for the, for the stock market was $3.61. Okay? So now the S&P 500 is at 4050 so a huge leap from 120 to 4050. And the dividend, by the way, is $60 on average. So including dividends, it works out the S&P 500 has done 10%. This is after this current dr drop in the market. And so including dividends, a pretty darn good return. This is about the average in the US stock market is about 10%. And even if you pick the worst time, you still end up with the average as long as you stuck with it. So it comes down to, time in the market, not trying to time the market. You do have to put in the time. Yes, Scott. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we're talking, we started the show talking about gas prices, 222 a liter gas. You brought up uh, the recession of the 1970s and you're talking about going uh, south with your parents. I remember um, my parents had just bought, a, you know, one of those giant camper things. Yep. And, and, you know, I think for seven years straight, we went south of the border camping as kids. Great memories as that, uh, of that. But there was one year where we didn't go because we were scared we'd get down there and we couldn't get gas because there were shortages and people yeah. were lining up for blocks and blocks and blocks just to get gas. So yes. how ironic where we are right now with a very short energy supply and a lot of demand when something goes wrong. And that's exactly what happened in the 1970s. And clearly we didn't learn a lot from that. <laughs> Full circle. And uh, here we are again. And funny enough on this week's paper, they're talking about people are going to limit their travel because yeah. of the gas prices. I saw so, that. So in a nutshell though, the best way to measure your investment success is not by whether you are beating the stock market. It's by whether you have a plan, a financial plan in place and the behavioral discipline that will likely get to where you want to go. Who wrote this? Benjamin Graham. And he was, he is, and was Mark Bu uh, Warren Buffett's teacher. Hmm. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management. 905-972-7420. Going to pause here for a quick break. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. Boy, we've talked about this a few times, timing the market. You might as well be in Vegas, uh, Mitch. <laughs> Should you buy a plane ticket or call your financial? financial planner <laughs> well uh, yeah talking about a lottery ticket or being in vegas well there's the a myth a very common myth about missing or timing the 10 best days and it goes back all over 20 years and this uh this myth about investing is if you miss just the 10 best days in the market you'll have a significantly lower return than if you're just invested the whole time uh but this is a little bit absurd because it kind of ignores how people feel about risk. Uh, the myth is that market returns are dramatically lower if you remove the 10 best days of the market in the last 40 years, for example, the 10 best days out of more than 10,000 
account for almost two thirds of stock market return for an entire year. In the last 20 years, the 10 best days account for 75%. You should always be invested because missing those days, you'll have a significantly lower return. So if you try to time the market, it's gonna just be significantly worse. The problem with this myth is that mathematically this is correct. The value of the S&P rose 284% in the last 20 years. And without those 10 best days, it just rose 76%. But it does not make sense that someone could possibly miss just 10 best days. Uh, how hard would it be to try to time those out of the 5,000 trading days? So talking about Vegas and those odds are terrible. 10 out of yeah. 5,000. <laughs> you have to be very unlucky to miss those 10 days. Yeah. <laughs> someone who misses just the 10 worst days in the last 20 years would be hugely better off. 814% to 284%. But once again, is this something you should try to time the market when it goes down? Uh, definitely not, because how hard is it going to be to try to time 10 days out of roughly 5,000? You're saying 88% of the time you're going to be growing versus 12% going down. Well, I, I would take those odds a lot better than 10 out of 5,000. Right. Uh, but the issue is, is this brought up most often during high volatility. Such periods create lots of fear among investors and some serious, some seriously contemplate liquidating everything to avoid further loss. Historically, the market tends to also make it the largest one-day jumps when volatility is high and the market is in chaos. Nine out of the 10 best days since 2002 for the S&P uh, since 2002 happened during the 0809 financial crisis or most recently during the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. So there's nine of the 10 best days in the last 20 years. And those are two of the most volatile times during the last 20 years, 0809 and 2020. The, the helpful part of this myth is a slightly unrealistic hypothesis would be that someone seeking to miss the 10 worst days also misses the 10 best in the process. From a return point of view, missing both is practically the same as staying put about 319% to 284% rate of return in the last 20 years. The problem is it's impossible to time the market and those who try generally end up well behind those who just remain invested. And they'll actually get a significantly worse than if they just miss those 10 days on each side because it's basically impossible to miss those 10 days. But if you stay invested, you'll do very, very well. Carl Richards has a great chart. And basically after a big market downturn, people tend to say, I'm not going back in. They're so upset and mad about the market. And then the next part of this, the market trends upwards and they say, well, I don't trust the market. It's a fake out. It's going to go back down. And then it goes up a little bit more and they put in money and they say, I should have bought earlier. And they feel a little bad about it. But then it goes up even more and they put 100% of their money back in the market. They're saying, okay, well, I'm all in. And at this point, the market's already gone up a lot. And it could be at a peak and then it goes down a bit. And they say, I think prices are taking a breather before they have a big rally here. Uh, then it goes down a bit more. They say, I think it's temporary. Stocks will always go up long-term, but then it goes down even more. And it's, it's they're, they're out, it's too late to sell, but they sell everything. And they keep repeating this cycle, buying tops and selling bottoms, trying to time the market. And th that's how they get such a poor return rather than just staying invested and just having a trust in your financial planner that they put you in a good uh, allocation to get you a proper return for your goals. 
this highlights putting yourself in a proper comfort level as well, because you don't, some people can handle a little bit more volatility than others. And also each goal has a different allocation to it as well. If it's a short-term goal, five years and under, it should have less equities than if it's more, uh, if it's a 10 year goal. And the reason why it's this is because the S&P probability that you'll have a negative one year return is 27% chance. If you're looking at on a one year basis, you have about 27% chance that it's going to be negative. But if you're looking at seven years, so seven years, you have 9% chance that your money's going to be down after seven years. If you look at 14, there's a 0% chance in the history of the S&P that 14 years has actually gone down. So the key is to just stay invested because the longer you stay invested, the less chance you have of having a negative return. And 27% chance on a one-year return, that is a gamble compared to a 0% chance over 14 years. So you have to make sure that your, your investments are aligned with all of your goals and having a proper plan to do this with your financial planners, making sure that they're aligning you with each of your goals, whether that's buying a house or uh, just making sure your cash flow is proper so that you can afford the gas prices these days. <laughs> <laughs> we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. Going to take a break. We're back with our last segment coming up after this. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Don, we're going to finish off with uh, segregated funds and estate planning. What's this about? Yes, a lot of people uh, may not have even heard of segregated funds before. They're generally sold by insurance companies or ones that can deal with either. So really, in a nutshell, a segregated fund is identical to a mutual fund. So it's a managed portfolio. So you can have a a bond mutual fund, you can have a bond segregate fund, you can have a equity or a stock or a balanced mutual fund and a balanced or a equity seg fund. So really, then what is the difference between these two? Well, in a nutshell, there's there's a couple nice features a, segreg- a segregated fund has. One is it has an insurance element or could have, they don't always do, but they could have an insurance element so that if there's a downturn in the market, they will protect against the downside. So you can have a hundred percent guarantee. So if the market drops and you sell and you sell these funds ten years later, you will not lose money. Um, and again, if you're older, you may put them into a seg fund, knowing that if if you were to pass away, that and the market was down, your state wouldn't get hurt because of the market dropping. So there is a guarantee. Now this comes with a cost: the management expense ratio or the fees to run the fund. If you have insurance built into the product, you have to pay for that. So the more insurance built into the product, the higher the fee. So in a nutshell, a mutual fund normally would have, call it a 2% management fee, or maybe a bit less. A segregated fund for a 75% guarantee would have maybe about 2.5% management fee. And a fully insured 100% guarantee might get as high as 3.5%. So you are paying for this insurance. 
So if you're looking at this, there's a cost. So you don't get anything for free, but you could have one with no insurance. And in those cases, what's the advantage of that? Well, two things. One, if you're a business owner, you can have a segregated fund and it can, it's creditor proofed. So they can't go over to those assets. So I have had a, a few clients over the years that say, you know what, there is a risk. I'm not incorporated. I want a sole proprietorship. I have some money invested. I don't, if I, my business goes down, I don't want my creditors to go after my life savings. Put it into a segregated fund. It's a great way to do it. Uh, and the other big advantage, and this is probably the biggest advantage what I see most often is as people get older, they may sell their house and they have their proceeds and they think, okay, where should I put this money? Well, I could put it into a mutual fund or I can put it into a segregated fund. Now, if it is in a segregated fund, why would anybody do this? Well, you can name the beneficiaries in a segregated fund. And so what that means is it doesn't go through your will. It goes directly to the beneficiary. So upon death, you simply show the death certificate and the proceeds, whatever that segregated fund is worth upon death will then go to the beneficiaries. So this all is great and it would save, if you have a million dollars as an example, uh, it would save the probate tax, which would be 1.5%. Well, again, as we talk about percentages versus dollars, it sounds a lot better if you just say 1.5%, that's $15,000. So it's a great way to save probate fees by having it in a segregated fund, particularly if you are an older client and with, with some poor health, this is a way to avoid that. So now you can now look at the beneficiaries and say, okay, how am I gonna split this up? And it could be exactly as your will. So if you say, let's say there's three of you, you know, th two brothers and a sister as an example, you can say, we're gonna go 33.3% in each is what's written in the will, one third each. We're gonna do the same inside the segregated fund. We're gonna mimic the will. And so none of the assets actually go through the will anymore because it's in a segregated fund, it goes to the beneficiaries. Now. That being the case, you can also do, it doesn't have to follow the will. It could say, I'm gonna have 50% going to one brother and 25% going to a sister and 25% to the other brother. And we all see this occasionally if there's say a lot of care needed. So I, you know, let's say there's Alzheimer's um, or something to that effect or, or a lot of care, they're living with the person now and they say, you know what, um, for the last 10 years, this person has done everything for me. Um, I'm going to give 50% to that person because they've really taken care of me for the last decade and 25% to the others. So it doesn't have to mimic the will. So it is something that should be very transparent um, in the family. And the situations I've come across is it has been very well documented. Everybody, all the kids knew that one person is going to get more than the others. And it made sense because of how much extra work was involved. But a great product for the right situations. The biggest key in this is to make sure everybody knows what's going on because you never want to cause arguments after the fact. There you have it. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox have been here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Thank you, gentlemen. Another great show. Have yourself a great week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. 
The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.